When I was a senior in college, I had two answers to the question about what I was going to do after graduation. I'm going to save the world, and I'm going to marry rich. I didn't really do either of those things. Danina Rourke has a much better answer to that question. Well, my favorite answer to that question when people ask me right now, like, what are you going to do when you graduate? You're a senior. I, I like to say, well, I'm just going to continue dismantling the fossil fuel industry. She literally is going to continue to save the world. Welcome to Before It's Gone, the podcast where we talk about things that we might lose to climate change and how we can save them. I'm Gretchen, and my guest for this episode is Danine O'Rourke. She's a senior at Hampshire College. She's an experienced activist, a young idealist, and she's got a lot of great things to say. I wanted to talk to Danine after reading an article about her in the local paper. She goes to a nearby college and was part of a delegation of young people who attended the COP summit last November in Marrakesh. We talked for a long time and it was a great conversation. So much so that I couldn't fit everything into one episode. So actually, all the stuff about COP, you'll have to wait a few weeks to hear that. And I'll tell you, it's definitely worth it. But today, we're going to be talking about activism that she's done more locally and some of the challenges and victories that keep her inspired. My name is Danine O'Rourke, and I'm a, currently a senior at Hampshire College. And there I study climate change and social movements. This isn't exactly what she'd expected to be doing when she first came to college. I entered in thinking, like, knowing that I needed to study climate change, and it was always a passion of mine when I was little. Um, but the way that I wanted to approach it was through more like science, and like it was my understanding that I needed to um, learn how to like save the environment and save the trees. But her ideas changed pretty quickly. Really quickly at Hampshire, I, I joined this group called the Climate Justice League, and I realized how climate change truly exacerbates all these existing social issues in the world and how it's so interconnected with um, like struggles that affect humans and how like I can't, that can't be ignored and talking about climate change. And I had always been approaching it from this environmental um, viewpoint. And so learning what climate justice means and learning about divestment and learning how I can influence what's going on like so quickly into college, really, I, I saw this whole world of people who cared about what was happening and who were also feeling um, so much despair about it, too. From then on, I was set, I was hooked. Hampshire's the kind of place where you get to do a lot of learning outside of the classroom. I've been really engaged locally in the Valley um, for the past three years, organizing to stop um, proposed fracked gas pipelines specifically, and building a big 
um, climate justice movement in the Valley. The biggest campaign that I worked on here was the Kinder Morgan Northeast Energy Direct fracked gas pipeline that um, was, it would have brought um, fracked gas from the Marcellus Shale in Pennsylvania up through um, New York State and Massachusetts and New Hampshire and likely to be exported to Europe. It was crossing state protected land and farmland and the Connecticut River and like very, uh, a clearly um, horrible idea, <laughs> simply. When I think about this, it's, it's just, it's so overwhelmingly joyful, just how this happened. But, um, I mean, the pipeline stopped, it's completely dead. Kinder Morgan pulled their application out from FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. It was really beautiful to see how, for two and a half years, that project mobilized so many people, people in the hill towns who had never organized before, like farmers and, um, and then people who'd been organizing for 50 years, like all came together and, and formed these alliances and had so many different tactics. There were rolling marches, there were young people biking across the state trying to stop it. There were, um, plays and songs written and huge lawsuits. Um, every avenue that was used, there was nonviolent direct action we were preparing for. Um, and it really showed that this like diversity of tactics is incredibly integral to stopping a project. There was this one um, Department of Public Utilities hearings in Greenfield where um, Buzz Eisenberg, a local lawyer, was testified and he said, um, stand up in the audience if you're willing to commit civil disobedience to stop this pipeline. And all of the 700 people in this middle school auditorium stood up and you could see on the faces of the DPU um, workers like <laughs> this like fear and like overwhelm. And then he said, I'm going to defend all of them pro bono. <laughs> and exactly a month after that was when they pulled out. So I completely attribute it to the resistance that we led. And now when I think back, you know, I, I like to try to hold some gratitude for Kinder Morgan and this like lofty idea that they had of trying to build this massive um, billion dollar pipeline right through this area is that they united us. They united people who now have not stopped organizing and now are really active locally. And wow, it was, it was, that was one of the most hopeful moments I've ever experienced when I saw that that pipeline was stopped. Of course, even when there are big victories like this, the work never stops. So now there's another Kinder Morgan pipeline, um, much smaller, but it's been approved. So it's further along the track than the, the NED pipeline ever was. Um, it's called a Connecticut Expansion, and it is 
mostly in Connecticut, but a loop, a four mile loop of it goes into southwestern Massachusetts um, in the southern Berkshires. And that loop is a gas storage loop, and it's because they are drilling so much for gas that they're fracking so often, so rapidly, that they need a place to keep it because um, it's not being used all the time. So this loop is going into a state forest where some of the only old growth hemlock tree stand in the state. So now it looks like what we had been preparing for Ned will be needed for this pipeline. And we're gearing up for some long-term occupations of this state forest where the, the project is going to be is proposed to be, I should say. <laughs> and it's not just about the trees. There's this beautiful pond called Lower Spectacle Pond that's right near this. And um, part of their plan is that they need to, need to drain um, a million gallons of water from the pond and funnel it through their pipes to test out how their pipes work. And it's unknown like what substances like line their piping and how that's going to affect the water it's there is just this like blatant disrespect for um, nature and also there um, there are a number of identified sacred stones of the Narragansett tribe that are being threatened by this um, 73 sacred stones have been identified by the tribe um, and identified to Kinder Morgan. And Kinder Morgan came back and said, we can, um, we will protect two thirds of those, but there's one third that we just can't do anything about. They have to be, um, they have to be destroyed. So the tribe is pushing back on that as well. So this is really, um, it really, connected to what's happening at Standing Rock as well. If we, if we weren't preparing to be meeting them, um, they could be done with cutting in, who knows, like a week. But I, we're not going to let that happen. But don't think that it's just Deneen and her college friends who are standing up to the energy companies. The movement is mostly led by senior citizens. Most of my organizing in the Valley has been like I'm the youngest by 50 years in the room. These intergenerational spaces are, are really powerful because they're threatening, I think. They're threatening to the powers that be that we're not necessarily supposed to be working together. Like, students and people in their 70s, you know? And that, I think, to <clears throat> major fossil fuel companies looks a little scary. Like, what are they doing working together? Working alongside people who have been organizing for 50 years, it's like greater than any textbook I could read at school. It's so, so many stories of success and failure and, um, all the different movements that have shaped this country are like embedded in people who are still walking around today and like can share these learnings and I've learned so much from them.
Other college activists she knows have the same experience. I hear it from people across the country. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's almost like, it almost has an easy answer, that those are two groups of people that just have more time. Like they're retired maybe, or they have like, they don't have kids, or they have this flexible schedule. And you know, it points out a lack, at least that I've seen in the local climate movement, that like we need to be providing childcare so that we're getting that like middle age group of people because um, it's just not accessible for all people to be in meetings all the time in the evenings when like that's the only time they can be with their family. But I feel like the issue of climate change like is so connected with raising a family and the idea of having kids and bringing kids into the world that maybe um, this like age gap that may have always been present in social movements in the U.S. like could be could be broken with climate change because perhaps like my generation will be the one that has like significantly fewer children than generations before us because of this issue and so maybe like when I'm in my 30s or 40s middle age like there'll be Hopefully, all the young people who I'm working with now will still be in the movement, and there'll be even more young people behind us. But things are quickly changing, and ever since November, more and more people want to get involved. Something that really, I think, is changing it is like this time, and um, particularly with like Standing Rock. And Standing Rock has brought out, at least in this area I can speak to, like so many people now are active because of Standing Rock and also because of the new presidency, I would say. But wow, like the amount of people who will come to an event at the drop of a hat. There's something about that like new spirit-led, indigenous-led resistance that is really bringing people out that I've never seen before. And that like people who I've worked with um, who've been organizing for decades like haven't seen before and it's that like I think part of it is that Standing Rock has never happened before this like unprecedented bringing together of all these native tribes in the country who normally some of them like historically fought each other and all of this it's it's an incredibly beautiful time to be alive I try to tell myself you know that like there's a lot of um, a lot of beautiful resistance happening. All this interest in resistance is causing some complications. This is a huge question that we're trying to grapple with right now in the local group I work with, Climate Action Now. Um, you know, we've been around since 2012, and our model that we have of once a month we have these huge general meetings um, with breakout groups and those breakout groups then meet um, in between the next general meetings. This model has worked really well, but our first meeting after the election, we had 115 people. And this is just this has been seen around the country, this like huge surge of all these people coming to meetings. It, it's it involves really restructuring how how our organizing works. And I think at the core of it, it's requiring us to have a lot more one-on-ones with people who are entering. <clears throat> and 
you know, I guess catch them up and hear, hear why they're joining and why they're passionate and really listen for what skills they have and what passions they hold and how that can plug in. Because every, every single skill and every single occupation, I think, can be tailored to work within this movement. It's about really getting this issue into like every crevice of what we do and every crevice of, of the world and in each community. And that's it for this episode of Before It's Gone. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the podcast at beforeitsgone.show and on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so that episodes will be downloaded right to your device, and you won't miss our next episode with Deneen where she talks about her experience taking her climate activism onto the world stage at the COP Summit in Marrakesh. Before It's Gone is listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to donate, just go to beforeitsgone.show and click on the Donate tab. We'll tell you all the ways you can help out there. <laughs>